2024, an election year like no other. From the candidates to the issues, from voter integrity and analysis, we'll discuss debates, trends, patterns, election laws, and more. This is Vote 2024, Path to the Polls. A bedrock of administrative law for 40 years may be in jeopardy when the U.S. Supreme Court looks at challenges that might ultimately curtail the ability of federal agencies to regulate a host of areas that touch on American life. It can affect everything from health care to finance, environmental pollutants, and administrative agencies that use highly trained experts to interpret and carry out federal laws. Join me on Vote 2024, Path to the Polls. It's constitutional law expert Rod Sullivan, an attorney with the Newman Law Group. Good morning. Good Thank morning. you for joining us. Thank Appreciate you. you being back with us. Let's talk first about the origin of the case. It's known as the Chevron Doctrine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Chevron Doctrine is, uh, arises out of a case called Chevron versus EPA. But one of the interesting sidelights of this case is it really could have been called Chevron versus Gorsuch because the person who was in charge of the EPA when this case came out 40 years ago was Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch's mother. Now, he was a 14 or 15-year-old boy at the time, but this case has been around for a long time, and Justice Gorsuch has been in government for a long time. So, you know, it's interesting because you wonder, how does a legal battle over herring fishing ultimately have the potential to impact, say, health care? Yeah. Well, first, let's talk about the, the herring fishing a little bit. Um, the, uh, the federal government regulates herring fishermen up in New England. And f since 1976, they've put observers on herring boats in order to make sure that the catch is not excessive, that they're using the right equipment, and so on and so forth. And the federal government has always paid for these things. Well, the Department of Commerce ran out of money, and Congress refused to appropriate additional money for them to pay for these, um, these monitors on the, on the boats. So what the Department of Commerce said is, oh, well, you've got money, we need money, we're going to take the money from you, meaning the herring fishermen. It's not an insignificant amount of money. It's 20% of their revenue. So imagine if somebody said to you, you know, we're going to take an additional 20% of your income because you need to have monitors on the boat that are monitoring what's happening. Cost is about $710 per boat per day. So this went through the administrative procedure for, you know, four years or so, and finally uh, they filed a lawsuit. Uh, two, two different companies filed lawsuits challenging this regulation, and now it's gone up to the, uh, through the D.C. Circuit. The government has won at every level. They won at the trial court level. They won at the District Court of Appeals. And then the, a petition for certiorari, a request for the Supreme Court to review this case, came up, and the Supreme Court, four justices said, yeah, we're not going to exactly review this. We're going to review the doctrine under which these lower courts decided the case, and that's called the Chevron Doctrine, okay? So the Chevron Doctrine basically says that if an administrative agency is enforcing a statute, anything it does to try to enforce that statute, any interpretation it makes of the law that authorizes it to enforce that statute is okay, as long as it's not arbitrary and capricious. Well, very few things that anybody does in life are arbitrary and capricious. So it gives agencies virtually carte blanche to do whatever they want. What the Supreme Court said is, we want to review the Chevron Doctrine. We think it's been around and maybe it's gotten abused. Maybe it's time for, uh, uh, for it to be amended in some fashion. 
I don't think they're going to do away with the Chevron Doctrine. Like you say, it's been around for 40 years. But I do think they're going to massage it in some fashion where agencies don't have as much power. Now, what's the practical importance to everybody out here? First of all, if they do amend the Chevron Doctrine, the president is going to, whoever the next president is, whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump or somebody else, is going to have less power than the prior presidents did. They're not going to be able to do anything they want through agency action. And uh, therefore, it, it's going to be a slow process. It's not like this is overwhelmingly going to change anything except for the herring fishermen right away. But over the long term, I think you're going to see agency power diminish. Um, and Congress is going to require to actually do something. They're actually going to be required to pass statutes, tell agencies what they can and cannot do, and agencies are going to have to look for congressional direction. And that's interesting because right now we have a Congress that is probably the least productive that it has been in, in history. And yeah. we're going to get to that, okay. you know, and, and how Congress may have more power in the end in just a bit. So this system, as you pointed out, has been in place for decades and, and has governed how judges review curbs on air and water pollution, gun safety measures, and, and even workplace protections. Yeah. Well, let's take one, one significant example that people might have heard of, and that's the uh, eviction moratorium during the COVID crisis. You know, Congress came and said, okay, we're going to create a 120-day uh, moratorium on evictions if people aren't paying their rent because of COVID. So it was pretty limited, 120 days, then it's over. Well, when it came to an end, the CDC said, ah, oh, we have the power to create an eviction moratorium, and we're going to extend it and we're going to cover 80% of the country. And if you are not paying your rent in that 80% of the country, you can feel free to stay in your apartment or, or condo or house as long as you want. And you, the owner of this piece of property, you're going to have to continue to pay your mortgage. You're going to have to continue to pay your taxes and all the expenses, and you can't evict these people. So um, it's one of the fastest decisions the Supreme Court ever made. The, a group of realtors in Alabama took it up to the Supreme Court. And within a very few number of days, the Supreme Court came out with a decision saying, no court is ever going to uphold this power that the CDC says that they hold. We've looked at the statute. It would be absolutely frivolous and ludicrous to decide that they have this power. And therefore, we're setting aside the eviction moratorium. Congress needs to do it. You, the CDC, can't do it. And so that's just one example, though. And the agency came and said, hey, Chevron, Chevron, this is not arbitrary and capricious. We're going to do this. Congress did it. We can do it. Court said, no, you don't have that kind of power. So that's just one example of, of how this has come into, uh, into practice in real life. Now, one of the things about being around for 40 years is I, I think maybe what's happened over the last 40 years is that we've seen administrative agencies grow and grow and grow in size, grow in power grow in the, uh, the things they think that they can accomplish without, you know, going to Congress. You know, you don't, we don't like gas stoves. Okay, we're going to go ahead and start putting in regulations to do away with gas stoves. Well, if you have a gas stove or you have a gas stove manufacturing company and you disagree with us, who do you complain to? You write to your congressman, your congressman says, we didn't do it. You write to your senator, no, we didn't do it. Who did it? Well, the EPA did it. You know, they say it's, you know, greenhouse gas, and they're going to go ahead and eliminate gas stoves. We're going to convert over to all electric cars. You know, did, did Congress ever say that electric uh, gas-powered cars are going to go away by 2035? They didn't say it. The EPA said it. Well, where does the EPA get this power? Well, Chevron doctrine. You know, it's not arbitrary and capricious. 
we can do it. So I think what has happened is the courts and Congress have said, you know, well, you've had this power for 40 years now, and you've, you've abused it. It's gone too far. Um, and therefore, I think the court says we're going we're gonna to rein it in. We're going to, you know, we're going to restrict that power a little bit. We're going to have a little bit more judicial oversight than we've had in the past. We're not going to take the hands-off kind of feeling that we've had. And that's where this case kind of came about. The conservatives basically said, the conservative legal foundation said that uh, it hands too much power to the federal agencies at the expense of Congress and the judiciary. Do they have a valid argument? Because there are some people who say that the conservatives may regret this. Well, see, this one issue that they picked, the Supreme Court picked, is, is such an easy issue. Because when you're looking at something where you're saying the agency has expertise and therefore their expertise trumps the knowledge of Congress, that's one thing. The National Marine Fisheries has no expertise in who pays for monitors. This is a power grab. We don't have the money. You got the money. We're going to take the money from you and we're going to make you pay, pay these guys. And uh, so there's no demonstrated expertise there. And the power to tax is one that is specifically in the Constitution given to the House of Representatives and the Senate. Therefore, you have an administrative agency basically taxing an industry without any authority from the people who have the authority to enact taxes. Um, <clears throat> you know, so what if they said to you, yeah, well, we need, uh, we need new roads. And therefore, we're going to go ahead and impose a tax on your automobile because you drive on the roads and, uh, and you're going to go ahead and pay that. And you might say, well, Congress never authorized that. They're the ones who have the power to tax and spend. And the, the, the agency could say, well, you know, Chevron doctrine. It's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. You got the money. We want it. We're going to take it from you. So it was an easy issue. And I think that's why the Supreme Court took it. Um, so what other areas is this going to apply to? You know, it's going to be, it's going to have effect throughout the entire government. Justice Gorsuch, who I mentioned earlier, um, has said <clears throat> the problem with the Chevron Doctrine is that the individual never wins against the government. If you're a veteran looking for benefits, if you're a Social Security recipient looking for benefits, if you're a Medicaid, Medicare recipient, and the agency interprets the law against you, you're never going to beat the agency at it. I mean, all the judges, all the administrative law judges come from the agency. Where do they learn to do what they do? They, they were attorneys at the agency. They got to the point where they didn't want to be attorneys anymore, so they said, hey, I want to be an administrative law judge. And all the ALJs, administrative law judges, are basically captive to the agency. They've been in the agency. They believe in the agency. They're part of the agency. And consequently, the individual doesn't really get a fair shake when it comes to administrative hearings. So all this begs the question, you know, what's the, what's the court going to do? Because it's my understanding that some of the more conservative members of the court are a, a bit skeptical of the current framework. Yeah, yeah, they are. And, and it's, it's pretty clear to me that there are four votes on one side to amend the Chevron Doctrine. As I said before, I don't think they're going to do away with that. I think they're going to amend it. And there are three judges on the other side who are definitely against amending it. And one of them is Justice Kagan. I expect Justice Kagan will write a vigorous dissent. Why? Well, she's from Harvard. She taught administrative law at Harvard Law School. And she is, you know, she hired Cass Sunstein, who's one of the godfathers of administrative law, to teach at Harvard. And therefore, I expect her to write something. Now, uh, Harvard is also one of the universities that has been on the leading edge of making administrative law the most important topic for government 
regulation. In other words, they don't even require constitutional law to be taught, and constitutional law re restricts the power of the federal government. Administrative law enhances the power of the federal government. So Harvard's in that camp which says if you want to affect policy in this country, you need to do it through the administrative agencies. So I expect Kagan's going to write the dissent, and it's going to have a, d definitely three votes. And then there are going to be definitely four votes on the other side, which leaves two people. It leaves Justice Robert and Amy Coney, Coney Barrett, the two justices who are the swing votes. Roberts hates to overrule precedent. Matter of fact, a similar deference issue called our deference came up uh, last session of the court. And, and Roberts dissented and said, we are not going to overrule this case. And, uh, and so he was on that side, not, not overruling precedent. Justice Barrett sort of reveals herself in uh, oral argument. By the way, this is a very unusual oral argument. Oral arguments in the Supreme Court usually are one hour. This was a five-hour oral argument. They allowed a lot of people to argue, and a lot of argument was taken. And Justice Barrett made the opinion, made the suggestion, what is this going to do to us? Yeah, doesn't she think this is going to invite a flood of litigation? Absolutely. Do you think we're going to see every single past decision under Chevron come back to us? Do you think that every single decision that agencies make in the future we're going to have to rule on? We don't have the people to handle that many new cases. And so that leads us to a question as where is she going to stand on this particular issue? Because she's really skeptical. She's skeptical, yeah. She, she, she doesn't like to see these major changes in the landscape that have been in, in place since she was, before she was a lawyer. Um, so what is she going to do? Um, in response to her question about cases that arose before this decision that comes out, this Loper, Bright versus Raimondo decision, which will come out probably in May or June, um, is they're barred. Okay, statute of limitations has passed, time to appeal has passed. Those, I think, are going to be all locked in. My opinion is this is only going to apply to future decisions. And the court is going to have to, uh, have to then deal with whatever the new standard is for deference to agency action. Um, the parties to this suit framed it as a constitutional issue. They said, look, the courts have been, you know, Congress passes law, the executive and the agencies enforce the law, and courts interpret the law. And uh, they framed it as this is a violation of the Constitution by letting the agency interpret the, the statute itself and us not reviewing it, us granting them deference. Will the court take that position? That would be a very strong position to take, and I don't, exp I don't think they'll go that far. Um, but what's the middle ground? I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. And I'm not even exactly sure where it's going to go. I mean, if Roberts and Barrett side with Justice Kagan and the other two justices on that side, <clears throat> I don't believe that, that Loper Bright Industries is going to lose. I mean, I think they're going to win. The question is how they win. And I'm not so sure they're going to overturn Chevron or, or substantially modify it because Justice Barrett and Justice Roberts are in the middle. You don't know how they're going to go. So there are a lot of people, if you look, re read some of the, the, the legal opinions, that think they are. And I want to get back to that in a mm -hmm. second. Yeah. Amy Coney Barrett may be the monkey wrench in all of this, so we'll see that. And like I said, I want to get back to that in a second. I, I want to get back to a point you made a little while ago, the impact on, on presidential power. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, when you look at it, the, the defendant in this lawsuit is Gina Raimondo. She was the governor of Rhode Island. She was the head of Biden's transition team, and Biden appointed her head of the Department of Commerce. So she is the one who, you know, 
who enforced and enacted this particular uh, regulation involving paying for the monitors yourself. But every single agency has, virtually every agency, except for the independent agencies, have people who are appointed by the president and then therefore are supposed to uh, enact the president's policies. So let, let's take Department of Homeland Security, okay? We have Mr. Mayorkas, appointed by, by Biden, has basically said, okay, we're, we're not going to turn away these asylum seekers, we're gonna let them all come in. And therefore we have a, a flood of, of immigrants coming in. Um, so if all of a sudden the Supreme Court says, you don't have the discretion to do that, you are obligated to keep them out, um, Again, it substantially affects the power of Biden to affect a policy that he wants, or Mayorkas to affect a policy that he's, he's bringing forward on behalf of the Biden administration. Um, there are all sorts of issues like that. I mean, where, where did Congress ever say that um, asylum seekers coming to the United States get phone, get phones, get airfare to wherever they want to go, health care, education, food, and the like? Congress never appropriated that money. Would it be looked at differently between a Biden White House and a Trump White House? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Biden has said, I think Trump said if he's elected, he's going to close down the border on the first day. And of course, that's typical Trump. Trump rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. yeah, expansion on what he's going to do. But um, yes, it makes a big difference. Um, Governor or, or President Obama was known as the deporter in chief. He deported something like 3 million illegal aliens. Uh, more than Trump. So therefore, the president has a lot of discretion in doing these things. And if the Supreme Court says, yeah, you don't have quite that much discretion, that you have to get to Congress if you're going to appropriate money, if you're going to spend big pots of money on these various things, you need to go to Congress. It's really going to hamper the ability of the president to do it on his own. And the, the flip side of this is that Congress is going to have to stop being deadlocked. I was, and I was going to say, what if you got to do nothing Congress? Mm -hmm. And, and where, where politics gets in the way of everything. Yeah. I mean, you've got the upper chamber that basically comes out and says, all right, we've got an immigration policy. And the fact is, we've not really had an immigration policy since 42, you know, expired. And they come in, uh, you, you've, got, you've got people in the chamber that basically said, this is what the American people have been begging for. And then you have one presidential candidate who says, you know what, I need to use this as a tool of manipulation in the campaign. Don't go ahead and pass it. And there are games that are being played. This is a Congress that has not got one darn thing done because of politics. So this bill, if it does pass, becomes useless. Yeah, it, it, uh, there's no question about the fact that, it, you know, first of all, I think people don't understand that far more regulation, far more laws are passed by administrative agencies than are passed by Congress. I mean, as you said, Congress is basically a do-nothing body at this particular time. They can't even really get a budget done let alone pass any, any legislation. All of, the, all of the work in passing laws are not called laws, they're called regulations. They appear in the Code of Federal Regulations. Um, so that's the most powerful lawmaking branch in the United States. If this comes to pass, Congress, either we're gonna have a void and nobody's gonna do anything, or we're gonna have Congress step up and say, you know, if agencies can't do this anymore, we gotta sit down and talk. We've got to sit down and see if we can compromise on this. Maybe cooler heads will, prepare, will, will prevail. Congress will be, you know, Congress is the least powerful branch of government right now. Is the now. word compromise in their vocabulary? It might not be, but it might have to be. They might be forced to actually make laws and, and uh, 
specifically delegate authority or restrict authority, specifically make policy? You know, if, you, if you're aggrieved by an agency policy and you write to the agency, you get no response. You have absolutely no ability to affect what the agency does. And they, they say, well, we have notice and comment rulemaking. You can send in your comments. They don't read 95% of the comments. If you're a lobbyist, they'll read it. But a big industry player, they'll read it. If you're a lawyer, they'll, they know they'll read it. But you have Joe Citizen write a letter to uh, the EPA, the VA, the Social Security Administration and said, I object to this policy, you're not going to get any action. There's no political responsibility to you at all that the agency has. All of a sudden, if the agency lacks discretion and Congress has discretion and has the power, you can actually put pressure on people you have the opportunity to vote for. And the hope is, among those some legal scholars, is that this is going to alter the balance of power back to Congress and away from the presidency. All right, so that leads me to the question that I promised I'd ask. Where might this go? Because at the end of the, the oral arguments for a few weeks back, it wasn't clear that there were five votes to overturn this. It's still so not. Is, is Amy Coney Barrett the, the deciding factor here? Uh, well, her and Roberts. I mean, what Roberts did in the case last year is said, I'm going to go ahead and agree with the more conservative justices, but I'm going to refuse to overrule existing precedent. And he was a lone vote that way. So it became a, uh, you know, a, a sort of a jumbled opinion. Um, he might do that in this case. He might simply say, you know, Chevron's been around for 40 years. Uh, and therefore, I don't want to upset all 40 years of precedent, and therefore I refuse to overrule um, Chevron. Uh, I'm not even sure that the four conservative justices want to go ahead and say we are reversing Chevron and going back to whatever might have existed before it. So the whole court might say we're not, we're not re reversing Chevron, but we're going to massage it. We're going to add this additional requirement. And one of the requirements that makes sense to me is to say, you have discretion in agencies where, you, in areas where you have expertise beyond everybody else. But if you're just the standard, you know, ordinary question of, of exercising your discretion, and you don't have any demonstrated, you know, expertise in this area, we're not going to defer to your judgment. So if you go to the FCC and they're, you know, they're regulating wavelengths of signals or whatever, that they're going to get discretion on. But if they're saying, well, you need to pay for this, you know, we're, we're going to go ahead and tax you to pay for this, the court might say, you don't have any particular expertise in taxation or fees or anything like that, and you don't have that power. That could be a, that could be a limiting factor that would reduce agency power. All right, as a constitutional law expert, you have the court's ear. What's in the nation's best interest? Uh, I think, in the, first of all, I, I'm in agreement with those who say that the administrative state has gotten too powerful. And if you've ever fought against an administrative agency, you, you know exactly what I mean. You, you don't get a fair shake before administrative law judges. You don't get a fair shake in changing policy. You can write to your congressman to your blue in the face, and he or she can't do anything, and the same thing with your senator. So um, administrative agencies have too much power. And, and by, by the way, uh, Florida, in its constitution, did away with the Chevron doctrine. So if you're dealing with a state agency, they get no deference whereas in federal they do. So some, something needs to be done to, to scale back administrative power. So what would I say? Yeah, whatever they can do that's going to maintain agencies using their expertise to establish policy is fine. Whatever you can do to scale back their independent exercise of, of authority is probably a good thing for us. I, I think in the long run, 
if they do scale back on Chevron, Congress is going to become more responsive to the people. Congressmen are actually going to have more real jobs, not just going to Washington, hanging around, talking to their constituents and other congressmen. They're going to actually pass legislation, not these show hearings and, and everything. Actually sit down and, and, and debate with each other about what is best for, for the nation. So I personally think that'll be good, but I don't think it's going to be quick. I think it's going to be one of those things where if they change Chevron, it's going to be a slow grinding process. It took 40 years to get to this spot. It might take us 10 years to sort of retrench the agencies a little bit in their power to, to where they should be. And the agencies will immediately start scaling back because, you know, when they meet now, they say, hey, we want to do this. What do you think? Is it arbitrary and capricious? Nope, not. Okay, let's, let's do it. Well, if that changes, then the agency is going to say, well, they don't, no, no agency wants to lose before the court. So the agencies are probably going to say, well, you know, maybe we don't have authority under the statute to really go that far. Maybe we need to go back to Congress and get some more authority or, you know, get some more money in the case of this Loper-Bright case. And, and maybe that'll make Congress more responsible to the people, make it more of a true people's branch of government. So I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. You are an optimist, but I wonder if time's on our side, especially when it comes to Congress, and given today's political climate, because I don't know when things are going to change given Congress. Yeah, I've, had, I've heard constitutional experts say that the reason we're divided is because all the power is with the agencies and, and Congress doesn't really have any power. I, I won't go that far. I don't necessarily think our divisiveness is, is due to the Chevron doctrine. But I do think that it will probably, I think if you give more power back to Congress, Congress will become more responsible than they currently are. Um, and, you know, my, my uh, apologies to our current congressman, but let's face it, you go up to Washington and you don't pass any laws. You don't, you know, you don't massage policy. You don't really, you're not really that important in the overall scheme of things. I mean, we, I like John Rutherford, I like Congressman Waltz and all the others, but you really don't have the kind of responsible job that we all thought you did because the power is with the agencies and it's not with Congress. And maybe this case will turn more of that power back to and Congress. And it's also because they're too busy pandering to others and they're too busy running for re-election as soon as they win. That's true too. Yeah, the, the moment they step in the door, they need to start raising money so they can run for re-election. And maybe that's something else that can be taken care of. Rod Sullivan, a voice of reason and maybe run for, no, I know not, you wouldn't. Not me. You're happy I'm, with what you do. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Appreciate you being here. Thanks very much. I appreciate your insights as I always do. Hey, you can watch Pass to the Polls again, or if you missed part of the show, anytime you want on demand on News for Jacks, the YouTube channel, News for Jacks Plus, and NewsforJacks.com. Appreciate you joining us back next Tuesday with a fresh edition. We'll talk about what lies ahead with South Carolina. What's Nikki Haley going to do? Donald Trump and his legal woes. Joe Biden. What's the Middle East going to do? The economy. People not happy with the economy because they're not happy with what goes on at the grocery store and more. Thanks for joining us. See why every day more people are choosing News 4 Jax, Northeast Florida, and South Georgia's number one source for local news.